New York, March 15th, 1923. It's a freezing Tuesday morning on the Upper West Side as icy sprinklings of frost dust the streets and slowly wake the sleeping residents. A young woman crosses the road from Central Park and heads towards a beautiful, historic brownstone apartment block on 57th Street. Once inside, she rides the elevator to the fourth floor and hurries along the carpeted corridor to a luxurious two-bedroom apartment where she'll begin her day's work of cleaning. It's the home of the Upper West Side's most extravagant, excessive, and notorious flapper, Dot King. The maid opens the door quietly to avoid waking the sleeping girl. Although the grandfather clock in the hall recently chimed 11 a.m., Dot King tends to sleep until at least midday, presumably to dodge the raging hangovers from her vibrant nightlife. But as the maid softly creeps into the room, she's met with an icy rush of cold air from a window that's been carelessly left open. Sighing at this stupidity, she firmly pulls it shut and stares around the messy room in disgust. Although used to Dot King's chaotic lifestyle of drinking, drug-taking, and partying, the state of the room today is a push even by her usual standards. A pair of men's silk pajamas are strewn over the littered floor, three expensive drinking glasses balanced precariously on a sticky table, letters burst out of desk drawers, and a sickeningly sweet smell hangs sharply in the cold air. As Dot lays peacefully sleeping, sprawled lazily across her bed, the maid perhaps wonders how such a beautiful girl can exist amongst all this chaos. With a shake of her head, she folds up the silk pajamas and stows them neatly under Dot's couch before rinsing the finger-marked glasses. But as she walks past Dot's bedside, the maid cries out in shock when something ice-cold and solid suddenly brushes her leg. Looking around for the culprit, she sees Dot's foot hanging limply down. As she bends over to examine the sleepy girl more closely, she's met with a gruesome sight. Dot's thin neck is plastered in heavy, dark bruises. Her plump lips are burned raw with blisters. One of her arms is wrenched at a horrifying angle behind her back. And in between her lifeless legs, an empty bottle of chloroform. There can be no question about it. Dot King is dead. In a panic, the maid wrenches the telephone from its stand and asks to be connected to Dot King's mother. Aware that she only lives minutes away, the maid implores her to come over immediately. Still thinking fast, she runs from the building and scans the neighboring streets for any sign of policemen. As she charges down an icy road just blocks away from 57th Street, she collides with an officer and begs him to follow her back to the building. So, by 11.30 a.m., the two large rooms where Dot lived are crowded with family members, friends, neighbors, and policemen. Everyone on the Upper West Side wants to find out how one of the most prolific flappers of their roaring decade has died. At the moment of death, 
people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Dot King, one of New York City's most loved flappers. It's about a beautiful young girl drawn to the bright lights of Broadway, the decadent, luxurious lifestyle she enjoyed on the Upper West Side. An extravagant era abundant in pleasure, partying, excess, and danger. It's about the mysterious, brutal murder of 29-year-old Dot King, the shady collection of men she strung along for their bottomless wealth and showers of expensive gifts. The dark secrets of her life that surfaced following her murder. And a confession given moments before her death that changed everything the world believed about the night the flapper died. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Dot King is born Anna Marie Keenan in Harlem, 1894. As the daughter of poor Irish immigrants, she spends her childhood in the slums of poverty, dreaming of the day she'll be able to escape the destitution of her home. For the young dreamer, no lights shine as bright as those of Broadway. She fantasizes about the star-studded streets downtown, the lavish lives of the beautiful and the famous, and the exciting electricity of the vibrant city that never sleeps. Despite her disadvantaged background, the young girl's dreams aren't met with teasing laughter or bitter reminders of reality. You see, everyone knows that Anna Keenan is destined to become a star. She shows off her bouncing blonde bobbed hair, flatters people with her ocean blue eyes and perfectly freckled face, and, as a teenager, draws in admirers with her naturally curvy body. She's a sparkling diamond hidden in the slums of Harlem. By the time she's 18, Anna finds her magical escape from poverty in the form of marriage. She marries a young, charismatic chauffeur who makes his money driving the wealthy around New York at all hours of the day and night. His car shows off the very world Anna spent her life dreaming of, Manhattan's elite. Watching from the sidelines with jealousy as her husband drives self-made millionaires, dazzling Broadway stars, reputed American families, and young wealthy couples, Anna silently prays for the day she can finally join them. And for the impatient teenager, that day quickly comes. Her desirable looks and charming personality attract attention from everyone who travels in her husband's car. Questions of intrigue and admiration about the chauffeur's delightful wife begin to infiltrate Manhattan, 
and after just one year in the city, an agent approaches her to become a model. Jumping at the opportunity of a lifetime, Anna quickly prepares for the stardom she's certain awaits her. She changes her first name and adopts her mother's maiden name, transforming herself into the beautiful young Dot King. Aged just 19 and naive to the ways of the world, Dot abandons her family, new husband, and life on the sidelines to chase the addictively blinding lights of Broadway. In 1915, the streets of New York City's Upper West Side are quickly changing as they race to embrace new liberties and freedoms of the modern world. The Upper West Side is ablaze with color and culture. Broadway slices through the middle, Columbia University sprawls along its north border, and the prestigious Carnegie Hall proudly overlooks Central Park. And as the skyline develops, the people of the Upper West Side begin to change too. Artists, intellectuals, and well-respected families flock to its mansions, transforming the historical brownstones into fashionable, classy apartments and galleries. It seems as though the West Side's days of crime and violence are finally fading as it makes a name for itself as the artistic alternative to the blue-blooded Upper East Side. But for everyone in the artsy West Side, Broadway is the magic that pulls them in. By 1915, the world of theater is truly taking off as it transforms from cheap amusement to high-class entertainment, becoming the beating heart of American culture. Its successful plays give birth to stars, influence popular fashions, and create a new type of wealthy as actors and producers claw their way onto America's rich list. With the dark threat of World War I looming over America, people begin looking to Broadway as a glamorous, exclusive form of escapism. This Broadway dream is sold to everyone across the country. Talented musicians, actors, playwrights, and comedians all chase their boundless ambitions and flock to the city's growing stages. And although there's an overwhelmingly bigger chance of failure than success, the dreamers refuse to be deterred. 19-year-old Dot King is no different. As she naively steps onto the Upper West Side, her saucer-like eyes consume every corner of the vibrant city and her heart beats in time with the Broadway dream. But the young girl's first success in New York doesn't come on stage as she expected. Instead, she's propelled to national fame as a dazzling model for Manhattan's elite. Dressed in exquisite fashionable outfits, Dot floats through the city's most expensive haute couture shops, tempting wealthy customers to buy the clothes she wears. Men and women willingly part with their cash as they're drawn in by Dot's silky blonde hair, her round blue eyes, and her petite but womanly figure. Within months, she becomes one of the city's most sought-after models, and designers queue up to get the newly famous and beautiful girl in their shops showing off their clothes. But it's not just renowned designers who seek the admired model. Wealthy men are also tempted by the irresistible charms of Dot King. So as her fame grows day by day, Dot begins to cling to the arms of several of America's most powerful men, enjoying the swinging nightlife with corrupt gangsters one moment and elite circles of married politicians the next. 
it's even rumored that she's romantically involved with the attractive son of President Warren G. Harding's attorney general. By 1916, as Dot enters her 20s, her fame is nationwide. Journalists report on her carefree, lavish lifestyle and admiringly worship her disarming smile. Her petite figure is widely photographed as it drowns in the thousands of dollars worth of glittering jewels, exquisite antiques, and exotic furs gifted to her by admirers. Throughout the city, pictures of her blonde bob, blue eyes, and satin headband become synonymous with the age of luxury, excess, and youthfulness she lives in. Perhaps inevitably, the lavish gifts showered on her soon overtake her modeling wage and, in 1920, Dot King finally gives up on her Broadway dreams. She divorces her husband, terminates her modeling contract, and swaps her life of work for the luxurious existence of a wealthy, unmarried woman in New York boasting a lengthy string of rich admirers. Although Dot is famous for her numerous boyfriends and independent lifestyle, there are two men she'll come to favor above the rest. But as she explores the contrasting sides of America they each expose her to, her reputable name will become shrouded in scandal, violence, and danger. Atlantic City, 1920. Dot King relaxes into the arms of a wealthy older gentleman, enjoying the safety she feels as his giant hands softly brush her skin. She hasn't felt this much admiration or love in months as by now, she's used to the rough, unforgiving hands of her no-good boyfriend, Albert Guimarez. Guimarez is a wanted criminal throughout New York, a rich gangster who's made his millions by scamming naive members of Manhattan and tricking them into his shady pyramid schemes. With his cunning brain and dangerously tempting smile, he guides fortunes straight from businessmen's hands into his own pockets. He's also somehow managed to charm Dot King into a relationship with him. Perhaps there was large sums of stolen money or irresistible bad boy qualities. Although we can't be certain as to how much she knows of Guimaraz's illegal activity, reports circulate that Dot helps to set up and manage a number of his schemes. Rumors have begun to spread that Dot even makes a list of suckers from her life, individuals who have offended or upset her in some way, and encourages Guimaraz to target these with his scams. She perhaps views Guimaraz's activities as exciting, money-making ventures in this new age of freedom where the line of law is beginning to blur. Or maybe she's forced to help Guimaraz purely to avoid more bruises or black eyes from his violent, jealous fists. Whatever the reason, there can be no doubt about the fact that Guimaraz is a bad influence on Dot. However, as Dot curls her small body around the older gentleman in Atlantic City, her new feeling of safety is suddenly ripped apart. The door to her private room flies open, and an enraged young man tears towards Dot, screaming how she's stolen his life savings, lied to him, and reduced him to a penniless fool. Dot perhaps tries to defend herself, but her charming words and attractive looks are wasted on the stranger. He charges at her and pulls her to the ground, dragging himself, Dot, and the older gentleman into a violent brawl. 
police eventually arrive to break up the fight. And for the second time that night, Dot's fame and charms fail to work wonders, and she's placed under arrest. However, one factor from this evening remains mysterious. Who was the anonymous violent man? Perhaps he was an unlucky victim of one of Dots and Guimara's pyramid schemes. Or maybe he was a jealous lover who hated seeing her in the arms of other men. Whoever he was, this impromptu attack should be a warning for Dot that her wild love for the thrills and danger of the growing criminal world is putting her young life at risk. It's a warm fall night in 1921. Outside of number 146 57th Street, a long black motor car quietly pulls up and a man steps out. He looks up at the tall brownstone building filled with luxurious west side apartments, then hurries into its lobby. After a few moments, he emerges and gestures a strange arm signal to the black car he got out of just minutes ago. Following the signal, a second man steps out. He's tall and muscular, but looks to be approaching middle age as gray hairs populate his head. Carrying a large bouquet of flowers and wearing an expensive suit, the man walks into number 146, tips the bellboy to ensure no one joins him in the elevator, and rides to the top floor, Dot King's apartment. The mysterious man in the expensive suit is Dot's wealthiest, newest, and favorite boyfriend, known only as the elusive Mr. Marshall. The man accompanying him is his best friend, Mr. Wilson. Dot King and Mr. Marshall were introduced to each other just weeks ago at a fashionable party in Greenwich Village. He's drawn to her beauty and charms, and her, presumably, to his wealth. The two are beginning a romantic, sexual relationship where Mr. Marshall excessively spoils his young girlfriend. He showers Dot with thousands of dollars worth of jewelry, brings exotic flowers on every visit, and even pays for the luxurious, wildly expensive two-bedroom apartment she's currently living in on 57th Street. The only catch to their relationship is Mr. Marshall's determination to keep it a secret. He refuses to be seen publicly with Dot and it remains unclear whether she even knows his real name. However, it's unlikely that his secrecy offends Dot. As one of New York's most attractive young women, she's never short of male admirers and glamorous dates who would give anything to be seen in public with her. So she happily spends expensive lunches and dazzling evenings in the arms of various men, whilst always retreating home to the private, caring company of the older Mr. Marshall. Dot's life continues in this carefree world of luxury as both her lifestyle and physical appearance embody the stereotypical flapper of the 1920s. Her unquenchable taste for partying and constant supply of cash even led her to buy a speakeasy in 1921, which she takes over as its glamorous hostess. With prohibition driving up both the desire and price of alcohol, Dot is able to party with her wealthy friends whilst simultaneously making a small fortune but by now her name isn't quite as pure as it once was. Journalists remark that she has more charm than virtue and even coin a phrase courtesy of the luxury she enjoys from various wealthy older men, referring to them as her sugar daddies. In 
Although her popularity cannot be denied, warnings are beginning to ripple that the young woman's lifestyle is inviting danger. Warnings that should not be ignored. As the years pass and Dot King continues living on her dynamic bubbles of life, she's joined by a young rising Broadway star, Hilda Ferguson. Hilda is an equally attractive, charismatic, and charming woman of the Upper West Side, and Dot eagerly invites her to become her roommate in 57th Street. The two women spend their days in a glittering, blurry world of drinking, dancing, and partying, living for exciting possibilities of the modern world, and funded by the never-ending generosity of their numerous sugar daddies. Hilda's own taste for adventure seems to rival even Dot's, and police are called to the apartment on numerous occasions to break up her own raucous and drunken parties. But sadly, their friendship is just as transient as the fast-paced world they live in. And in February 1923, Hilda moves her belongings out of Dot's apartment. She claims that the wild lifestyle Dot leads is simply too much for her. This is a strange claim for Hilda to make, seeing as the young Broadway star lives her own life with just as much energy and zest as Dot, if not more. In fact, Dot has never even attended one of Hilda's infamously disorderly parties that have brought noise complaints from neighbors. This strange and scathing remark will forever envelop Hilda in suspicion as, just two weeks after she leaves, Dot King will be found dead in her apartment. As March of 1923 coats New York in a bitter, thick frost, Dot King enters the last days of her life. But her final days won't pass in the same carefree, luxuriant style she's become so famous for. Instead, they'll be marred by arbitrary attacks and threats that strangle Dot in an overwhelming paranoia that someone is out to destroy her. The first of these attacks happens on March 12, 1923. Dot King is walking down 57th Street, the famously wealthy and safe street she knows so well. Her petite figure is bundled in layers of fur and her blonde hair flattened by a large hat when she hears footsteps crunching in the frost behind her. A woman yells Dot's name and she spins around quickly to see who the speaker is, only to be struck hard in the face and forced down onto the icy ground. Before Dot can scramble back onto her feet, the attacker strikes her again, desperately pulling at her hair while pelting her shivering body with kicks and slaps. Gradually, a crowd begins to encircle the fighting women, trying to pull the attacker away from the famous Dot King. But as they try to grab her, the anonymous assailant breaks free and runs away into the freezing morning air. No one ever discovers her identity. While the first assailant remains anonymous, the identity of Dot's second attacker is far more certain. On March 13th, just one day after her assault on the street, Dot rushes into her mother's house with a swollen, bloody, and bruised face. Through tears, she shows her mother what Guimaraes has done to her. Yet again, her face has been used as a bloody canvas for his fists. It's not known why he attacked her this time, although it's possible that his jealousy was triggered by her recent return from Atlantic City in the arms of another man. 
Dot swears to her mother that her tumultuous relationship with Guimaraes is over. She's sick of his violent envy, his crime, and perhaps most of all, his uncontrollable fists. But the tsunami of relief that floods her mother upon hearing news of this breakup is quickly dampened by a haunting confession Dot makes. Dot chillingly tells her mother that she's become fearful of her own life. It's a sinister prediction that could be blamed on the two attacks she's experienced within hours of each other. Or maybe there's another reason that Dot doesn't disclose. Is it possible that she knows something no one else does that has placed her life in mortal danger? The last time Dot is ever seen alive is the night of March 14th, 1923. Carrying a large bouquet of pristine white orchids and with a dazzling jade bracelet coiled around her thin wrist, she hovers between the tall figures of Mr. Marshall and Mr. Wilson as they ride the elevator to her apartment. However, although the elevator boy gratefully receives his usual tip to guarantee their privacy, he's left confused when by 2 a.m. they still haven't reappeared. The elevator boy will never escort the two men back down as once they enter Dot's room that night, they won't be seen in the apartment again and Dot King will be dead. March 15th. 1923. The Upper West Side apartment of Dot King is bursting with police, neighbors, and friends as they crowd the cold body of the dead flapper. The rooms of Dot's apartment are heaving with suspicious fragments of evidence. Evidence that undoubtedly suggests murder. On the umbrella stand that rests behind the front door, police find a thin wisp of white cotton that looks as though it may have fallen from some of Dot's clothing. It's possible that the cotton was torn from Dot through some sort of attack or tussle that took place the second she answered her door. Next, the police move around the ransacked room to Dot's body where they discover an empty bottle of chloroform balanced between her legs. Chloroform is a liquid substance occasionally used during this period as a recreational drug. Its anesthetic powers can lull individuals into a carefree daze or stupor. But recently, it's taken on more sinister undertones as it's crept into Hollywood movies as a terrifying, invisible weapon used by criminals to knock their victims unconscious. It takes just one glance at Dot's body to see that this drug was certainly the murder weapon. Her mouth is burned raw with scabs and blisters, and one of her arms is wrenched at an impossible angle behind her back. These haunting features seem to recreate the struggle Dot was forced into as her murderer poisoned her with the suffocating chloroform. However, the next piece of evidence is more chilling and haunting than even the rotting state of Dot's burned body. On her nightstand, Clearly visible amongst numerous letters, photographs, and banknotes is Dot's will. It reads, Dorothy Keenan, believing that something unforeseen might happen to me, hereby bequeath all my worldly possessions to my mother. Dot's own suspicions and fears for her life had been correct. She knew her murderer was coming. 
The police spend the remaining hours of the day searching Dot's apartment where they find even more clues and evidence of attack. They discover the pair of men's pajamas stowed under the couch, find that almost $15,000 worth of jewelry and all of Dot's letters from Mr. Marshall have been taken, and of course, learn from the maid that the window was left open. It appears as though the murderer entered through her front door, began a frenzied search for something in Dot's room, and left through the open window after killing the young woman. But what was the murderer looking for? Could it possibly have been Dot's expensive collection of jewelry? Or maybe her clandestine love letters from Mr. Marshall? However, it's not only Dot's apartment that presents the police with evidence, as her neighbors and fellow residents are quick to speak up. A woman living below Dot admits to have been kept up the night of the murder by scuffing and loud banging in Dot's apartment. She also professes to feeling disgusted when an overpowering, sweet smell passed into her room, a scent likely to have been the chloroform poisoning Dot. The second individual police hear from is the elevator boy who explains that he took Mr. Marshall, Mr. Wilson, and Dot to the fourth floor, but never escorted them back down. His testimony confirms that the two men were the last people seen with Dot and raises the incriminating possibility that they killed her and used the window to escape. However, there is a plausible reason the elevator boy didn't see the men leave. You see, the fourth floor apartments enjoy a private staircase that winds between the buildings of numbers 146 and 148, taking residents down a back staircase and out through a hidden door. Seeing as Mr. Marshall owns Dot's fourth floor apartment, it's likely that he's aware of this private staircase, so maybe chose to walk down rather than taking the elevator again. By the end of the day, police retreat from Dot's apartment empty-handed and unable to answer the hundreds of questions shouted at them about the dead flapper. They don't know who murdered her or why she was killed. But within days, a mysterious phone call will change everything as police are given evidence that almost certainly frames one individual. In the weeks following the murder of Dot King, police receive a phone call from an anonymous woman who claims to have undisputable evidence of the murder's identity. She presents them with a letter written by Mr. Marshall and sent to Dot, reading, "'Only two more days and I will be in your arms. I want to see you oh so much and to kiss your pretty pink toes.'" Although it's not clear how the woman came into possession of the letter, she somehow knows exactly who the elusive Mr. Marshall is, his real name is John Kersley Mitchell, and he's one of America's most influential business tycoons and son-in-law to the powerful titan of the finance world, E.T. Stotesbury. This pedigree suddenly explains why Mitchell was desperate to remain anonymous as Dot's lover. You see, not only is he a role model in the business world, but all throughout America. He holds the coveted rank of major for heroic services in World War I, boasts a large Philadelphian estate worth millions of dollars, is a loved and respected father of two, and husband to one of America's richest heiresses. His nationwide fame and admiration ensure any hint of an affair with Dot King would trap him in a scandal that would be almost impossible to break out of. Police quickly follow this lead and track Mitchell down, 
the businessman is helpful and cooperative and freely admits to having written the intimate love letter to Dot. He's arrested on suspicion of murder and announced as the number one suspect in the case of Dot King. Following his arrest, the press begin to form the theory that Dot may have been blackmailing Mitchell for his millions. Perhaps then, he and his friend murdered her to put an end to her ongoing requests. However, although Mitchell admits to having written the letter and masqueraded as Mr. Marshall, he vehemently denies the romantic affair, murder allegations, and speculations of blackmail. He insists that he and Dot were simply good friends who had enjoyed a meal together the night she died. He tells police and press that he and Mr. Wilson dropped Dot off at 11 p.m., stayed for a nightcap, and left at 2 a.m. As the post-mortem revealed, Dot was killed sometime around 6 a.m. Mitchell's story is believed and he's cleared of all charges. However, unanswered questions still remain over his involvement. If Mitchell and Dot were really just good friends, then why did he write the intimate love letter to her? Was it merely a coincidence that he was the last person to ever see Dot alive? Do the mysterious men's pajamas found in Dot's room belong to him? And why did he and his friend never take the elevator back down? Once Mitchell has been cleared of charges and his respectable name restored, it doesn't take the police long to move on to their next suspect. He's the man who already has a hefty criminal record behind him, and according to Dot's mother, is most certainly the murderer, Albert Guimarez. Police are familiar with Guimarez's brutal treatment of Dot and aren't surprised when they find him with a heavily bruised and scratched hand when he's brought in for questioning. They believe his injuries may link him to Dot's murder. Are they evidence of her final struggle as she desperately tried to resist his attack? But unfortunately for the police, Guimarez is able to provide two reliable alibis. His best friends, Edmund McBrien and Aurelia Fisher, confirmed to police that Guimaraes spent the night of Dot's murder with them. Just like Mitchell, he's cleared of all charges and released from custody. His supposed innocence leaves the police with just one more suspect they believe may have had something to do with Dot King's death. Hilda Ferguson is approached for questioning when police notice the suspicion surrounding her sudden and timely departure as Dot's roommate. She's found living in an expensive hotel just blocks away from Dot's apartment on 57th Street, meaning that her move clearly had nothing to do with location or geography. The suspicious coincidence that Hilda's sudden leave preceded Dot's death by just days leads police to form two possibilities. The first is that Hilda somehow knew the murderer was coming. She may have received a tip-off or warning from a friend causing her to flee from the apartment and save her own life by two weeks. But if this is the case, why didn't Hilda alert Dot to the danger she was in? The second possibility police entertain is far more sinister. They believe that Hilda could be the murderer. Her arbitrary departure from Dot's life may have been fueled by a ferocious, unforgiving argument the two women had had with each other. Their bitter disagreement perhaps led a furious Hilda to attack Dot on the street three days before her murder. As she was prevented from finishing Dot off due to the crowd that gathered, 
Hilda then returned to Dot's apartment and poisoned her with chloroform. This theory would frame Hilda as the murderer as well as Dot's mysterious female assailant. Is it possible that the two women had a disagreement powerful enough to cause the delicate, petite Broadway star to physically attack and then forcefully poison her ex-best friend? Unfortunately, records don't reveal how Hilda responds to questioning, but somehow her answers satisfy police of her innocence, and she too is released free of charge. However, although each suspect is cleared of guilt, they all share one thing in common. Mitchell, Guimaraes, and Hilda are the only individuals in New York City who possessed keys to Dot's room on the night she died. After weeks of possible theories, suspects, and brief arrests, the police throw up their hands in defeat. They cannot solve the murder of Dot King. But while they turn their backs on the mysterious murder and get caught up in more Manhattan crime, a confession given moments before death will surface that changes everything the nation believes about Dot's tragic fate. It's now the summer of 1929, and a collection of Manhattan's elite and wealthy gather at the prestigious Potomac Boat Club in Washington, D.C. Amongst the high-class guests are Edmund McBrien and Aurelia Fisher, the two friends who provided an alibi for Guimaraes during the Dot King investigation six years ago. However, despite the beautiful setting and relaxed atmosphere of the party, McBrien and Fisher are aggressively arguing with one another. As the sun glares through the glass panels of the boat club, Fisher retreats from the room in tears, telling McBrien she wants to find one of her friends. It's not known who exactly she finds to talk to, but what she confesses to them will seal her tragic fate. I perjured myself in the Dot King case, Fisher blurts out, explaining through tears that she provided a false alibi for Guimaraes. Fisher wasn't with Guimaraes or McBrien on the night of Dot's murder, so cannot vouch for their innocence. This confession should change everything about what the police believe happened to Dot King. If Fisher's alibi was false, then where were Guimaraes and McBrien on the night of Dot's death? Did they have something to do with her murder? Surely Fisher's need to lie in the first place and her subsequent guilty conscience suggests that Guimaraes certainly has something to hide. But unfortunately for Fisher, someone else hears her confession, Edmund McBrien. Grabbing her by the wrist, he roughly drags her outside to the club's balcony, claiming the two need to catch some fresh air. But just moments later, a horrifying scream echoes through the club's walls as Fisher's body is found lying on a boat directly beneath the balcony. She's declared dead at the scene. No one can be sure what happened to Aurelia Fisher. Did she, as McBrien insists, slip and accidentally fall to her death? Had her guilty conscience become too much and caused her to jump? Or did McBrien in fact push her? Perhaps her recent confession intended to go further than incriminate just herself. Maybe she knew something that placed both Guimaraes and McBrien in danger with the law. 
A trial follows to discover how Fisher died, but the court finds little evidence to suggest McBrien had any malicious intent or reason to push her. Police even seem reluctant to act on her confession of perjury and make no moves to re-question either McBrien or Guimaraes about the murder of Dot King. Frustratingly, Fisher's case is quickly dropped and her confession soon forgotten. But what else did Fisher know about the murder of Dot King? And why had she committed perjury for one of New York's most wanted criminals? Tragically, the mysterious case of Dot King remains unsolved to this day. Who knows whether Fisher's confession of perjury was genuine and what she would have told if she hadn't fallen to her death. Perhaps Guimarães was Dot's murderer. His violent temper and jealousy may have exploded that fateful night in March, resulting in him cruelly poisoning Dot to her death. Or maybe it was the jealous roommate Hilda Ferguson, a rising star perhaps tired of being stuck in Dot King's famous shadow and desperate to make her suffer after the unexpected breakdown in their friendship. Or was it even the mysterious and wealthy Mitchell? As a married man, he was in constant danger of being caught in a humiliating affair with a flapper that would scandalize his reputed family. Did he kill Dot to silence her and save his own reputation? No one can ever be sure who murdered Dot King or why the beautiful flapper was killed aged just 29 years old. Her murder, however, is not remembered in isolation, as just one year after her death, another young, glamorous Broadway chorus girl is killed in an almost identical fashion to Dot. Her name is Louise Lawson. The alarming similarities between both women and their deaths raise the possibility that their killer was in fact the same person. Was there someone out there who held a murderous vendetta against the women who dared use their beauty for fame? Someone who despised the freedoms, liberties, and revolutionary risks taken by the new women of America? The tragic deaths of Dot King and Louise Lawson remain unsolved mysteries of one of America's most fascinating eras. As the nation became drunk on its uncontrolled consumerism, confidence, wealth, and glamour, Dot and Louise were pulled towards its endless possibilities. They too became high on the luxuriant, liberal lifestyles that New York had to offer, replacing any remnants of sensibility with a reckless, zealous zest for life. But in the same way America would come crashing to a standstill in 1929, Dot and Louise were burned by flying too close to the sun. The beautiful, Charming young stars who dictated fashion trends, impressed audiences on Broadway, hypnotized thousands of admirers, and embodied the very essence of the 20s, were killed whilst pursuing everything they had dreamt of. Due to their unquenchable addiction to the dazzling lights of fame, the deaths of Dot King and Louise Lawson will forever be remembered as the Broadway Butterfly Murders. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Samuel Little, America's most prolific serial killer. In May 2014, 
Samuel Little was charged with the murders of three women and sentenced to life in prison. But what the jury and judge had no idea of was that Little had in fact killed far more than three women. Just one year before his death, Little confessed to having killed a horrifying total of 93 women, each one with his own bare hands. His confession released the chilling, haunting story behind the most deadly serial killer in America's history. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.